Paul in Jerusalem, part two. Last week, we looked at his determination. Today, as he is now in Jerusalem, we will look at his preparation. We'll cover verses 17 to 22. For sake of time, let me read verses 17. I'm sorry, we'll cover 17 to 26, but for sake of time, we'll just look at 17 to 22 to begin. Acts chapter 21, verse 17 to 22. The Bible says, When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. And on the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. And after greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law. They have been told about you, that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Let's ask God's blessing. Father, please take this ancient, inspired, and infallible text, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, open our eyes, penetrate our hearts with truth, and help us to see Christ through it all. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, back when I was in high school, in my spiky hair days, where I would be wearing those baggy jeans and wearing heavy metal t-shirts, I was listening to a rock album over and over again, and interspersed through the songs was a quote by a man named Ray Kurzweil. Ray Kurzweil was a secular computer scientist, a futurist, and right before one of my favorite tracks, the quote would come on, and it said this, Death gives meaning to our lives. It gives importance and value to time. Time would become meaningless if there were too much of it. I think you and I can relate to that to some extent. We live in a world of time-saving devices, and yet we are still so crazy busy, right? And we know our conscience before God That we waste a lot of time. We probably live in one of the biggest time-wasting generations in human history. We don't have to hunt for our food. We don't have to garden for our food. Some of us choose to do so, but not for all of it to feed our families. We don't have to race against sunset and sundown. Sunset and sunrise. That's how unfamiliar I am with those things. And so we have a lot of time. But if we're honest, we tend to waste it, don't we? And so, maybe you can relate to me, you work better with deadlines. I work so much better with deadlines. I think about how, when I I talk about wanting to go back to college or seminary, and people have said, well, why don't you just take, you know, audit online classes? It's all, there's so many free things you can do. And some people can do that, but others, like myself, need to know that we've paid a lot of money, and we have deadlines, and we have accountability, because otherwise... I'm not disciplined enough to get it done. That's why I think in sports, when there's a time limit, things are more exciting. Some of the greatest moments in sports history happen right before the buzzer. Even this year, or maybe last year, Major League Baseball added time limits 
because people complain that baseball is boring, which is not true. But I understand the need for, to kind of speed up the game a little bit. So I think that Kurzweil made a good point when he said time is meaningless if there's too much of it. And that is what he means when he says death adds meaning to our lives. When you know that your time is limited, typically you focus a lot better. You prioritize. When you know there's a deadline looming, you know that you don't have time to fool around. You don't waste time when something is due. But I want to ask you this morning, what if that which is due is not a term paper or a project for your job? What if what is due is you? What if you knew that in just a few short moments or days or hours or weeks, your time was up? I was looking at a survey of folks who were told that they had 24 hours to live. This was hypothetically. If you had 24 hours left on earth and you knew you had 24 hours, how would you spend it? So I watched this video and it was a secular video. And there are many things in here that I can't repeat. But some of the things that people said they would do with such limited time involved dreaming. For example, performing on a Broadway stage or flying to wherever I want. Other answers were more daring, such as, I want to get stung by a jellyfish or hijack a plane. Someone actually asked the producer, can I kill someone? Tell off my boss? Hotwire a car and drive 200 miles per hour away from the cops? Some people's dreams in their last 24 hours were more indulging the flesh. Drinking and smoking. Someone wants a hangover night before their death. Many people responded about engaging in sexual activities that they've always fantasized about. And many also answered they would eat and drink whatever they wanted. Some of the answers were sentimental. One person said this, I want, I want to call all my friends and tell them I love them. And the person behind the camera said, well, that's boring. Someone else said, admit my undying love for a special person. Some people thought about accomplishing things before they died, such as paying off loans, dying with good credit. One person said, I would spend a few moments with my kids, and then I would go to Vegas. And one person said, I would try to be nice and see what that's like. I want you to think, what do all of those answers have in common? And we'll explore that at the end of today's sermon. The Bible does tell us about the preciousness of time. It tells us in Ephesians to redeem the time for the days are evil. To make the most of every day. Your 24 hours a day and mine is a gift from God. And we are expected to be good stewards of the things he gives us. When we think of stewardship, we often think of our money, our resources, our house, our cars. But often we forget time is your greatest resource. In our last message, verses 1 through 16, we considered Paul's determination to go to Jerusalem, even above all the warnings. So Paul now is in Jerusalem, and he recognizes he has limited time. Remember in our last sermon, the prophet Agabus, who came from Jerusalem, showed Paul that when he goes to town, he's going to be bound. It's not necessarily a prediction of death. Paul doesn't know when he's going to die. But he knows that at any moment, 
his freedoms will be severely limited. His ability to go visit this church and that church and go here and go there will be taken away. He will soon be in the mercy of people who want to take his life and get rid of him. And now he's in the very place that his friends were telling him, don't go. And that the Spirit of God kept warning him, when you go to Jerusalem, only imprisonments and persecutions await you. Paul's time is limited. How does Paul spend that time? What are his priorities during this limited time? Well, as we look at what Paul's priorities are, I hope and pray that you and I would be encouraged to also make the most of every day. So let's look deeply into this passage. And it's a very simple outline, but there's a lot of twists and turns today. We'll look at the praise, the problem, the plan, and the priority. First, the praise. Verses 17 to 20, I had already read to you when we began this sermon that Paul came to Jerusalem. And verse 17 says, the brothers received us gladly. Paul walks into the church. Uh, Jerusalem is the mother church, right? It's where everything started. This is the church of the apostles, Peter and James and John. Well, we don't find John or Peter here, but we do find James, James and the elders. And Paul represents the Gentile church. Paul's not a Gentile, of course, but he had been going around establishing churches in Gentile places. And he's coming back to the mother church. He's facing the apostle James himself, the half-brother of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he's reporting some good news to him. It says in verse 18 that he related to all, uh, or in verse um, 18, he went with two James and the elders were present. Verse 19, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And what was the response of the Jerusalem elders in verse 20? It says, and when they heard it, they glorified God. That is an amazing thing. We take that for granted. But when someone reports to you and to me, whether individually or to your church, look all that has happened because of God working through us in this area or that area. It is an opportunity to glorify God. It's an opportunity to recognize God is not only on the move among us, but he's on the move around the world. As you think of the ministry of the month, for example, here at Bread of Life, and someone comes to this pulpit every week and prays, and this month is Daniel Bill, are we glorifying God for what he's doing among people in Honduras? In the first century, this was even more scandalous because of that tension between Jew and Gentile. Jerusalem is the place for the Jews. Paul is Jewish. He's going around testifying to the gospel to the Gentiles, bringing them into covenant with these believing Jews. For some of the Jews, that's hard to swallow. Because they had been taught all their lives that the Gentiles were heathen, were other. But these elders set the example by hearing what Paul said and glorifying God. And I would say even Paul sets an example. Look at how he words it in verse 19. He related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles. Not what he had done, but what God had done. In other words, the same God of the Jews is the God of the Gentiles. And all who believe in him are one in that same God. That's the praise that Paul arrives to when he comes to Jerusalem. A warm and joyful praise. 
a welcome. Now, what's not mentioned here, but what would likely have happened is that in the midst of Paul's initial meeting with James and the elders, he presented a gift. I believe I mentioned that last week, that Paul was taking a collection from the Gentile churches to give to the Jerusalem church, which is, which is kind of odd. In our day and age, typically it's the, the mother church that supports the little church plants. But remember, there was a famine in Jerusalem. And these churches of Gentiles, 99% of whom never met anyone in Jerusalem, wanted to give back to the people through whom God preached the gospel first. And Paul talks about that later in Romans 9 and 10 and 11 and the tree trunk and the branches. And these Gentiles understood that were it not for the Jewish people, they wouldn't know the gospel. And so in a, in a way to help, but also in a way to express unity, these Gentile churches raised money for the people in Jerusalem. And Paul brought it to them personally. Remember, back then you couldn't Venmo, you couldn't do cash app, you couldn't write a check. He was probably carrying bags of money with his cohort and presenting it at the feet of James and the elders in a sign of solidarity between Gentiles and Jews. Even throughout church history, the relationship between Paul and James has often been misunderstood. If you know anything about um, Reformation history, you know that sadly Martin Luther did not take a liking to the book of James He even suggested that the book of James might not be inspired scripture because James seems to emphasize works. Now we know looking back that what James is talking about is works as evidence of salvation, not as the cause of salvation. And there is harmony between Paul and James. Even today, some liberal scholars will say that Paul preached a different gospel than James. That's why it's important to look at this meeting and see the the, 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 the unity and the praise and the welcome that these two individuals have. Because in a sense, Paul is representing a whole people group, as is James. And they're coming together and glorifying God. This is a beautiful testimony of the unity of Scripture and the unity of God's people. However, as you can see, point number two, there is a problem. It's not all roses here. In verse 20b... The Bible says, and they said to him, you see, brother, I'll just stop right there. I've seen in some of my studies here that word brother. In one sense, it's a beautiful thing because here you have the the brother of Jesus, the, the chief apostle in Jerusalem, James, calling Paul a brother, the same Paul that persecuted the church. And that is amazing. But others have also suggested that this is a way to sort of set the stage for a problem he's about to expose. You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law. So Paul has said to James, God's doing amazing things among the Gentiles. Glory to God. And James is saying, yeah, and here in Jerusalem, there are many thousands of Jewish believers. I am reading from the ESV where it says many thousands. The literal translation of many thousands in verse 20 is actually tens of thousands. Jerusalem was teeming with people in this time period. I think it's really helpful for us to understand the context in order to understand the problem. In Jerusalem, 
in this decade around the 50s, Jerusalem was experiencing a nationalistic revival, a resurgence. And I'll spare you all the details, but I think it's really helpful to understand what that means. As you know, the Jews were under captivity, in a sense, in the Roman Empire. Not captivity in the same sense as Daniel and the Jews of old. They had some freedoms, they were able to worship God. But they longed for those days of King Solomon. They longed for those days of King David. Many Jews actually rejected Jesus because he didn't restore the kingdom. So no matter how closely they felt with their Jewish identity, they knew they were always under the boot of Rome. Things started to change, though, in the context in which we're reading. Herod the Great's internationally powerful kingdom gave way to a series of Roman governors who courted favor with the elites in Rome. And traditional Judeans, among whom he was wildly popular, according to Craig Keener, rekindled Jewish nationalism, shattering the apparent inevitability of direct Roman rule. What that simply means is there was a resurgence of patriotism in being Jewish. There was a resurgence of cultural identity that one day we're going to throw off the shackles of Rome and we're going to be the Jews under Solomon or David once again. And you've seen that throughout history of different cultures kind of feeling that solidarity with one another. But that's the context in which many thousands of people came to faith in Jesus in Jerusalem. So you have thousands and thousands of Jewish people in Jerusalem. And they're all united by the fact that they're ethnically Jewish. They love the law of God. They worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They go to the temple and they offer sacrifices. They keep the dietary laws. They keep the feasts. They keep the fast. They are Jewish and they're more proud of that heritage than ever. But some of those thousands, many of those thousands, also come to believe that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah. Which now makes them not only Jewish, but makes them Jewish Christians. And so the question would be, to that average Jewish Christian in the first century, what's more important to you? Your ethnic heritage or your spiritual heritage? And we can relate, right? I I would assume many of us take pride in our ethnic heritage. We enjoy the foods and the customs that remind us of our childhood, of our grandmothers, of our grandfathers. We find solidarity with people who can speak our language. And there's nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with loving your culture. Nothing wrong with patriotism. But there's everything wrong with it when it stands in the way of your Christianity. Because in Christ there is neither Jew nor Gentile. There is neither Italian nor Brazilian. We are all one in Christ. And when you have a context of a, of a growing nationalism that puts Judaism above Christianity, that's a danger for understanding the priority and the place of the law. 
It's just like anyone who would say today, well, I'm African-American first and I'm Christian second. Or I'm Italian-American first or I'm Christian second. And maybe you don't relate to that, but many of us sometimes operate as though we are American first and Christian second. Our allegiance to Christ must supersede all other earthly relationships. We ought to be Christian first, then American, not the other way around. I'll just give you an example of how this plays out. And please understand the spirit in which this is coming. Today, as you know, is Father's Day. And I don't know if you've noticed in the past few years that Bread of Life, we have not ever tailored our services for Mother's Day or Father's Day. And that's not because we think either of those holidays is evil. And it's not because we think that churches that do that are wrong. If you go back in our sermon archive, I think seven or eight years ago, we did Mother's Day sermons and Father's Day sermons. But along the way, we realized that there's 52 weeks in the year, 52 Sundays to prioritize the Lord Jesus Christ. Do we really want to move everything around because of a modern American holiday? Is, is it right to do that? Now, of course, we want to acknowledge the fathers, and that's why uh, last month we gave gifts to all the women in the church. We give gifts to the men in the church. We do want to acknowledge them. We hope that you have a wonderful day if you're celebrating today. But what we're trying to model is this, that our identity is not dictated by Hallmark or by holidays that weren't made holidays until the 1900s, but by the heritage we have as the people of God. And I find such a paradox when when some Christians who, who love to make sure that we celebrate Veterans Day, Memorial Day, Father's Day, Mother's Day, and then when it comes to things like Christmas and Easter, we're like, well, have you heard? History Channel says, you know, that's pagan. And we're so quick to believe all the worst we can about Christian holidays, and we run after the American holidays. I would rather have solidarity with brothers and sisters who believe in the Lord Jesus than with Americans, though I am an American. And I hope you understand what I'm saying here. You see, we we come up with holidays all the time. You ever notice if you if you use a smartphone and you're on Google or your calendar, how many holidays there are that people just seem to arbitrarily come up with? Did you know that um, today is not only Father's Day, it's also International Sushi Day. It's also Clean Your Aquarium Day. Remember just recently when Christmas fell on a Sunday? There was a conversation amongst American evangelical Christians that since Christmas falls on a Sunday, should we bother having church? How absurd. Don't give the Lord his due on the Lord's day because Christmas falls on a Sunday. All the more reason to go to church on Sunday. Do you see what I'm saying about how these holidays aren't wrong? But what's your priority? And for the Jews, it wouldn't be wrong for them to keep the feast and and, and identify themselves as a a, a son or daughter of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But what will take precedence in your life? What's more important to you? So when Luke tells us what James said, look again with me in verse number 20, the very last phrase in verse 20. They are all zealous for the law. The context is they're very proud of their heritage and they love the law of God in the Old Testament 
And they've been told something about you, Paul, that's making them very suspicious. Verse 21. And they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. That's a nasty rumor. That's a slander. They're slandering Paul. Paul never said in any of his sermons or his teachings to forsake Moses. Matter of fact, the Greek phrase for forsake Moses in verse 21 is a phrase used for apostasy. These overzealous Jewish people, they've come to faith in Christ, but they've been told, I don't know where they heard it from, maybe from the Judaizers themselves, they've been told that that guy Paul, he is... He is teaching every Jewish person that he's met around the Gentile area to forsake Moses. He's telling them, don't circumcise your children. He's telling them, don't follow the law. He's a hater of God's law is basically what they're saying. And that's a rumor because it's not true. Paul is being accused of betraying his own ethnic heritage, Judaism. And that's why James says in verse 22... What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. So you see how it goes from the praise to the problem? Praise God for what he's doing. But, got to tell you something, Paul. People are saying these things about you. We've got to come up with a way to mitigate the problem. Before we look at the plan, let me just dive in a little bit more about why this is not true. See, Paul's teaching on the law, we would say, is nuanced. And nuance is always lost on overzealous folks. By nuance, I simply mean there's multi-layers to it. Paul never said, don't practice the law, ever. But you would have to actually listen to what Paul's saying to make that conclusion. Have you ever been misrepresented? Ever had a conflict with your spouse? Or at work? Or at the playground? And someone said, you said this, but you didn't actually say that thing? That's what's happening. Paul does have some teachings that are different than many of the Jews were raised with. But he's not saying that the law is bad or the law is abolished completely to the point where you can't practice it ever again. But there are some things we have to understand what he means. So I'll summarize some of that to to put forth what Paul's teaching actually is. It's true that in his epistles, Paul taught that Christ is the end of the law for all who believe. He taught that the law could not save us. He taught that the law brings us the knowledge of sin. And thank God. Because if you try to obey God's law, which is not, by the way, just the Ten Commandments. It's 683 commandments in the Old Testament. What you wear, how you sacrifice, what you eat, what you don't eat. There is nobody in this world who ever can follow those things completely. And even if we get rid of all the ceremonial laws and the civil laws and just reduce it to the Ten Commandments, okay, just these ten, can anyone obey that completely either? Can anyone be justified before God by obeying the law? As soon as you go down those Ten Commandments, you recognize you're a sinner. Don't have any other gods before me. Most of, I think all of us stop at commandment number one. 
We don't even get to number two by the time we realize, yes, I put other things in front of God. I am an idolater at heart. And so Paul teaches the truth about the law, which is by the law is the knowledge of sin. I would not know that I was a coveter if the Bible didn't say you shall not covet. The law reveals to us what we've done wrong. Just like when you disobey a law in the government and it says, you know, what you've done wrong. Oh, I violated that law. It's specific. It's tangible. Sin is not just some some nebulous, you know, we're all imperfect. No, sin is, as John says, transgression of the law. It is specific. And we've broken God's law. But Paul also teaches us that the law of God is good if we use it lawfully. At the same time, Paul repudiated, and this is probably where they're getting this idea from, he repudiated anyone who suggested that the law was necessary to be a Christian. And that's why in the book of Galatians, he said, the law is our schoolmaster that brings us to Christ, right? When the law shows you your sin, what do you do? You have to run somewhere. Wow, I am such a sinner. I have disobeyed God in thought and in action and, and intention even. Where do I go? The law drives us to Christ. The law drives us to the Savior. But there were people that were teaching the Gentiles, oh, you've come to believe in Jesus? That's great. In order for you to be one of us, you've got to be circumcised, you have to keep the holidays, you've got to keep the feasts, you've got to keep the fasts. And Paul says, when you do that, when you tell people there's something in addition to Jesus that brings you into covenant with God, you are preaching a false gospel. You are adding to the work that Christ has already accomplished. The law is good if used lawfully, but the law does not save you. That's what Paul was saying. He's saying if anyone comes to you and says that you have to do X, Y, and Z, other than faith in Christ, let him be anathema. But Paul would also go on to teach in Romans where there were Jews and Gentiles in the same church. That if you want to keep the Sabbath or don't want to keep the Sabbath, if you want to drink or don't drink, you want to eat or don't eat, let everyone be fully persuaded in his own mind, but do not pass judgment on one another. So putting that all together, what does that mean? Paul is saying this. The law of God is good. It reveals God's holiness and his character. But the law of God cannot save you. That's why you need a Savior. And if you come to the Savior, Jesus Christ, whether Jew or Gentile, the law is not going to be put in front of Christ. You can obey the law if you want in your conscience to do so. As unto the Lord, you want to keep a feast as unto the Lord, you want to fast as unto the Lord, you are more than welcome. But do not tell your brother or sister, you must do these things to be saved. Because when you say that, you are rejecting the grace of God that is found in Jesus Christ. That is what Paul is saying. You know, and that's hard. It's nuanced, right? Because sometimes we want just black and white answers. Do I follow the law? Or do not follow the law? And Paul's saying, you have freedom. But don't use your freedom to put un- other people under slavery. So if you're Jewish and by your, your allegiance to your Jewish ethnicity, you want to follow the law, that's great. Go for it. But remember the freedom you have in Christ and do not impose that on the Gentiles. I think we saw this um, in, in the way Paul viewed circumcision. Right? He had two disciples, one a Gentile, Titus, 
One, a Jew, Timothy. Timothy was not circumcised. When Timothy was on a mission trip with Paul, where he would be uh, dealing with other Jewish people, it would be offensive to them that he was an uncircumcised Jew. And so Paul circumcised Timothy. Not because that would make Timothy saved. Not because Timothy had to do it, but it was best for Paul to do that with Timothy so as not to be offensive to the people he was trying to reach. I think of Hudson Taylor, the missionary to China, who in the 1800s would learn not only the Chinese language, but the Chinese customs and even don the Chinese clothing in order to reach the Chinese people. This is called contextualization, and it has a place. It can also be abused. But then when it came to Titus, the Gentile convert... The Judaizers were saying to Paul that Titus must be circumcised if he's going to be one of us. And Paul said, nope, we're not going to submit ourselves to a yoke of slavery. And he did not circumcise Titus. So when we go back to our text and we see what James tells Paul, which is there are people saying that you said That the Jews who are walking among the Gentiles need to forsake, abandon Moses, and not circumcise their children, to not walk according to our customs. I hope you see that is a flat-out lie. It is a misrepresentation of what Paul was saying. There's nothing new under the sun, brothers and sisters. Slander happens all the time. You have probably been the subject of slander. Nuance gets lost on people who are overzealous. And we live in an age of sound bites and self-appointed gatekeepers, so I think this has even intensified in our age. So when you hear a rumor, like the Jewish people heard a rumor about Paul, I just encourage you, check your sources. Check your sources' sources. When you hear a preacher so-and-so said this, that means he's this or that. Listen to the sermon. Read the book. Do your homework. Unfortunately, the worst representations of people spread a lot faster than their best representations. Back to the story. Paul comes to Jerusalem. He learns that his teaching is being misrepresented. But Paul's goal is unity. His goal is not to fight back. He's willing to do what he can to achieve the goal of unity. That's why he's come so far. So James and the elders, they offer a plan. And by the way, this plan wasn't come up on the spot. It seems like James and the elders had a plan all along. Verse 22 to the end of the text. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what we have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter from our judgment, with our judgment, that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, and from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men, and the next day he purified himself along with them, and went into the temple giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. There's a lot in there. But in short, the plan that's offered by James and the elders is that Paul would take four men. These men all took an Old Testament vow, a Nazarite vow, which includes sacrifice, sacrificing in the temple, and participating in the ritual 
by paying for their expenses. So as Paul is in the temple with these men, he would be, number one, doing something publicly. So all the Jews would see, oh, there's that Paul we heard about. We heard that he's forsaking Moses, and here he is doing one of the most Jewish things you could do, standing in the temple with Nazarites making a sacrifice. And number two, Paul would be doing this in such a way that cost him. So people would see he's sincere about it because he's paying for their vows. The idea here is clear. James is saying to Paul, while you're here in Jerusalem, I want you to show everyone that you do respect the law. And if people see you participating in this vow, then they will know that the rumors they heard are false. That's why he says that in verse 24. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you. The hope here is that Paul's ministry will be validated and accepted by the Jerusalem Jews, and that would unite them to all the Gentiles that Paul reached out to. And as for the Gentiles themselves, James simply reiterates in verse 25 what we looked at months ago in the Jerusalem Council of what the Gentiles are expected to do. Now you might imagine this plan is a little bit controversial. And I have to tell you that while I lean in a certain direction as to whether or not what Paul's doing here is right, there's a debate on this issue. And it's not just amongst unbelieving scholars versus believing scholars, but I've read several books and several articles to prepare. And there are some very respectable, believing commentators who think that what Paul did here was wrong. And I respect that position. And then there are those who think it was not wrong. Now, they believe it's wrong, and they have a good point, because even though Paul is free to follow the law, you would think the last thing he would ever want to do is make a sacrifice in the temple. Because at the end of the day, Christ is the once-for-all sacrifice. And because Christ sacrificed himself once for all, There is no need for any more sacrifices. And so as some commentators suggest, why would Paul, knowing what he knows about the truth of the gospel, go into the temple and in front of the very priests who killed Jesus, make a sacrifice? So their argument here is that what Paul and James are trying to do is kind of like political posturing. Let's make ourselves look good and... Strive for unity, but at the expense of truth. And I think that's a pretty powerful argument. And that's why I say it's very valid. I'm persuaded that's not quite what we have here. And I'll tell you why. But you're free to believe either one. I don't think this was wrong. I can see why people say that. But here's a few reasons why I'm convinced that what Paul does here is not sinful. And by the way, if it was sinful, so let it be, right? I mean, at the end of the day, David sinned, Solomon sinned, Moses sinned, Abraham sinned. God's people can sin. Paul is not perfect. So I'm not trying to protect Paul here. But I don't think this was wrong. I'll tell you why. First of all, there's no indication from Luke, the writer of this text, who was inspired by the Spirit of God, that this was wrong. Oftentimes in the Bible, when any of the heroes of the faith make a mistake, fall into sin, the Bible's clear that God was displeased. 
Peter was rebuked. Ananias and Sapphira were judged on the spot. Moses was rebuked. There's no sense here of Paul or James being rebuked for this. And I think that while that's an argument from silence, it does carry some weight. There's no indication that what Paul is doing is wrong. Um, Yes, it's true that in the very next episode, Paul will be arrested and he will be arrested in the temple while he's there. But is that so much a judgment for wrongdoing or the fulfillment of a prediction that we've been looking at the last month? We were told that he'd be arrested. Implicitly, we can also imagine, as hard as this might be, that Paul is able to perform Jewish ceremonies while looking back to Christ. If you've ever had the opportunity, for example, to attend a Passover meal, a Jewish Passover, sometimes Christian churches will do this. We've done this many times at Bread of Life. And we'll put all the elements of the Passover on the table, from the afikomen, the the unleavened bread, to the wine, to the bitter herbs, and and hold everything up and explain what what this meant to the Jews and how every last one of these things points us to Christ. It's a beautiful thing. When we look at the Lord's Supper today, I mean... Going off script here, but from what I remember, it's so amazing. There's, there's three unleavened matzos in the, in the Passover meal called the afikomen. And one of them goes into the middle of the table and then is broken and then sort of hidden. And we can only imagine that these three matzos might represent the Trinity, one of whom gets broken. And that when Jesus celebrated the Passover meal with his disciples, he held up that very piece and said... This is my body. There are so many things in the Jewish ceremonial laws and regulations that point us to Christ. And I wonder if Paul, while making a sacrifice and believing these sacrifices can't save, he's also remembering the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Besides that, this is a transitional period. What Paul is doing in this text could not be repeated in just a few years because in 70 AD, the temple would be destroyed. So when you and I look back and we read Leviticus and Numbers and we read about the, the sacrifices and, and the lamb and the, and the turtle doves and the pigeons and all these animals that were killed, does it not bring you back to the once for all sacrifice of Christ? It's possible that's what Paul could be doing when he's in the temple. And what I really believe that Paul is doing here is what he said about himself in 1 Corinthians 9. Would you please turn to 1 Corinthians 9 with me? 1 Corinthians 9. a lot about freedom. But as F.F. Bruce has said, a truly free spirit such as Paul's is not in bondage to its own freedom. What that means is that if it's best for the people around him that Paul does something out of respect, he's not going to assert his freedom and say, well, I don't do that anymore. Obviously, If it's not sinful. 1 Corinthians 9 shows us the priority. I asked you in the beginning of the sermon, what would be your priorities if you only had a little bit of time? Paul's priority was clearly the unity in the church 
for the sake of the gospel. And knowing that Paul, the the great teacher of how we've been set free from bondage, the great teacher of how there's a once-for-all sacrifice, is somehow in the temple with Nazarites, as absurd as that might be, as you read these verses, understand that this was probably his heart. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 19 to 23. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew, in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. Do you see what he's doing here? He's participating in something without being subject to it in his conscience. To those outside the law, verse 21, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. He clarifies, when I go to the Gentiles, I don't have to obey the the laws, the regulations, but it doesn't mean I'm like free to sin. I'm still going to follow what Christ told me to do. Verse 22. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I might share with them in its blessings. This is the heart of the Apostle Paul. This is the heart of the Apostle Paul. We can argue about the way he did it, whether it was right or wrong. And I think, again, there's a case. But even if the commentators who say it was wrong for him to do that are correct, it doesn't undermine the main point of what his heart was. His main goal was to foster unity in the church for the furtherance of the gospel. Here's the point. Paul knows at any moment he's going to be arrested. His own life and personal safety were not his priority. Other people were his priority. The gospel was his priority. And I ask you, would you, would I, be willing to forego preferences for the sake of gospel unity in a way that does not compromise the gospel? I've shared with you many times my former fundamentalist background, where not only did I sing nothing but old hymns, which I love, by the way, but we were taught that if you don't sing just old hymns, if you sing contemporary music with a backbeat, you are in sin. There was legalism in that. And I'm thank, I thank God I'm free from that. But at the same time, does that mean that I can't go to a church that only sings hymns? That my freedom in Christ means I can't, for the sake of my brothers and sisters, join with them in singing praise to God because, well, this is boring? Absolutely not. I wonder if you would be willing to dress more formally if you're on vacation, you find a church where everyone dresses very formally in a church that expected it, even if you were saved out of, say, a holiness Pentecostal background where they legalistically put that on you and you said, I'm not going back to that. Would you be willing for the sake of the gospel to forsake your preferences for the unity of the church? You may find that you have the freedom to drink alcohol. But for the sake of the one who would stumble, would you be willing to put that away? See, it's one thing to appease a legalist. We don't want to do that. But it's another to show solidarity with brothers. It's one thing to compromise with a fault finder. But it's another thing to clear up misconceptions. How do we know the difference? Well, 
D.A. Carson gives a, a very uh, a good contemporary analogy. Here's what D.A. Carson said about Paul. He says he refused to circumcise Titus even when it was demanded by many in the Jerusalem crowd. Not because it didn't matter to them, but because it mattered so much that if he gave in, he would be giving the impression that faith in Jesus is not enough. Then he gives a contemporary example. D.A. Carson says, If I'm called to preach the gospel among a lot of people who culturally abstain from alcohol, I'll give up alcohol for the sake of the gospel. But if those people start saying to me, you cannot be a Christian and drink alcohol, I would say, pass the port. See, Paul is flexible and therefore prepared to circumcise Timothy when the exclusive sufficiency of Christ is not at stake. When a little cultural accommodation will advance the gospel. But when the tables were turned, he is rigidly inflexible and refuses to circumcise Titus because people are saying that Gentiles must be circumcised and become Jews to accept the Jewish Messiah. So I hope you see, no matter what your view is on what Paul did, that he would never have done something that would intentionally undermine the gospel. I believe that if a high priest had told Paul that to make sacrifices in the temple is the only way to find favor in God, I am sure, based on what we just considered, Paul would stop in his tracks. But for the sake of unity, Paul was able to participate in temple sacrifice with Christ's once-for-all sacrifice in view in order that he would show solidarity with all those who believe in Christ, both Jews and Gentiles. Now, what does this mean for us? I I know this narrative kind of takes us in a different path, and we wonder, how does this have to do with the opening question of making the most of your time? Well, I want to tell you something that you might not hear in Joel Osteen's church, and it's this. It's actually not about you. In the beginning of the message, we talked about how we prepare for suffering, how we prepare for the end, how we prepare knowing our time is limited. And remember, I related to you several responses in that video of what some of the people said. I would go hijack a plane. I would tell off my boss. I would fulfill all my desires. And I said, what do those answers all have in common? What they all have in common is that they are all about self. All about me. I have 24 hours left. I better live it up. Check off my bucket list. Do what I want to do before I go. How would I live my life? How would I satiate my appetite, scratch my itches, live life to my fullest? And why should we expect any different? If this life is all that there is, as the Bible itself says, then let us eat and drink and be merry, for tomorrow we die. However, by now, you might be thinking, what does Paul's sacrifice in the temple have to do with the topic of preparation for death? I believe this is a preparatory story, because don't forget, while Paul is having this conversation with James, in his mind is the fact that at any moment he's going to be bound and imprisoned. And whereas I think most of us might be thinking about what we can do to protect ourselves, Paul is thinking of how he can use his time for other people. How he can use the moments he has left to make sure that whatever division might exist between Jew and Gentile in Jerusalem would be obliterated. 
And this brings us back to the foundation of this sub-series, is that Paul's life is a mirror of the life of Jesus Christ. Jesus himself knew his time was limited, didn't he? When, he? when he came into Jerusalem, he also came to praise, right? Hosanna in the highest, Palm Sunday, knowing for sure that on that Friday he would be hanging on a cross. With just one week left of his life, how did Jesus spend his life? Did he have a bucket list? No, on Monday he curses the fig tree and he cleanses the temple. On Tuesday, he spars with religious leaders. He teaches parables. He heals the sick. He tells more parables. He, he declares the greatest commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart and neighbor as yourself. On Wednesday, Jesus is anointed by Mary of Bethany. On Thursday, his disciples observe the Passover and the Lord's Supper in the upper room. And just hours before he would be, be betrayed, Jesus washed their feet. No one in that video mentioned that. Just hours before the end and do one of the most lowliest acts of service I could do. And then Friday, he was crucified. As we think of how our Lord used every moment of his earthly life for other people and the furtherance of the gospel. And he stoops down to wash feet just hours before his death. And in this text, Paul stoops down. He's free in Christ, but he stoops down to become all things to all men on the night before he is also arrested. It points us all to this, that with whatever limited time we have, our priority must be outside of ourselves. When faced with suffering, when faced with inevitable demise, it's not about preparing ourselves. It's about selflessness. Now, of course, we're not going to have the insight that Paul has unless you are sadly diagnosed with something and the doctor says to you, you have weeks or months to live. Most of us will walk through this life not knowing when our last breath will be. But what do we know? We know, number one, that suffering is inevitable. For all those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer. And we know, according to James, life is a vapor. You don't have to prepare then for death because Jesus did that for you. But you prepare by living life for the glory of Christ each and every day. Let's end our time with Psalm 90 as we come down for a landing here. The Bible tells us to redeem the time, to make the most of every day. Not for yourself, but for Christ. As you turn to Psalm 90, I want to relate to you a story that we just... We're looking at at our men's study on Friday. You've heard of William Carey. I think William Carey was a Baptist missionary, the first missionary to India. He went to India against a lot of his fellows during that day, saying that God's going to convert the heathen with or without you. But he went to India. He labored for years before his first convert. There are people in India who believe in Christ today because of what William Carey did hundreds of years ago. But as Joni Erickson Tata tells a story, William Carey didn't do this all in his power. Do you know that William Carey had a sister that he called Polly, who was bedridden, paralyzed for 52 years? 
How can Polly make the most of her time in bed for 52 years? Joni Erickson taught us this every day for 52 years. She faithfully prayed for her brother. William Carey's efforts were blessed by God. India was reached for Christ, but what he did became a model for modern missionaries even to this day. All because a paralyzed woman prayed. Your context is different than Paul's context, obviously. My context is different from William Carey's sister's context. We're not going to relate to all this one-to-one. But if there's anything God is teaching us is make the most of your time. Whatever situation you're in, less of self, more of God, blessing others for the unity of the church and the furtherance of the gospel. Because every moment matters. Brothers and sisters, are our priorities in order? Psalm 90, verses 9 through 12. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Let's pray.